when I teach church history, one of the first things that I want students to understand is that there is no golden age of the church. We are always pilgrims and sojourners, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. The golden age is when God is all in all. Yeah. You know, when we talk about the Church of the Martyrs, we have a lot to be grateful for. But let's not let's not kind of idealize you right. know, the age of persecution. Welcome to Faith and Culture, a production of the Augustan Institute. Every week, we explore the glory of the Catholic faith and the beauty of Catholic culture. And now, here's the host of Faith and Culture, Joseph Pierce. Hello, I'm Joseph Pierce, and welcome to another Faith and Culture podcast of the Augustan Institute. My guest today, once again, is my good friend, John Seahorn. John, welcome. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Joseph. And John uh, Seahorn is an assistant professor of theology here at the Augustan Institute graduate program in theology. Mm-hmm. And uh, not surprising then, although we have actually discussed all, all sorts of things, such as the Lord of the Rings and, and what have <laughs> you in the past, but we are going to be staying uh, on a theological theme today, and that's Christ's peace and uh, how it rela- relates, if you like, to the peace of the world. Yeah. So what's the difference between earthly peace and the peace of Christ? Yeah, well, I mean, there are a number of ways uh, to approach that, right? Jesus himself says that there's a distinction, right? My peace, I give you my peace. Not as the world gives, right? But I'm giving you a different kind of peace. I I think the most interesting way to approach it is through one of these stories that's so familiar that it's really hard to hear. Uh, And that's Luke chapter 2, right? The famous Christmas story. I always think about uh, in the Peanuts Christmas special, you know, Linus reciting it. (laughs) And, uh, but one of the things you can miss, you know, we, we we think about peace. You know, the angels talk about peace and we've got these shepherds and Mary meek and mild and so on and so forth. But one of the things we can miss is that there's, there's a kind of imperial or even cosmic showdown going on, right? Because if we've read Luke chapter 1, We've heard the angel Gabriel telling Mary that that her son is going to sit on the throne of his father, David, and rule over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom's going to have no end, right? This is the Davidic king. And if you read the Psalms, the Davidic king was supposed to rule to the ends of the earth, right? He was eventually supposed to subjugate all the Gentiles. So if you kind of have that in mind, it's really striking at the beginning of chapter two that now we see this pagan ruler, Caesar Augustus, throwing his weight around. Right. So this piece we've been that we're hearing spoken of is is in a cosmic context. Well, I think so, but it, that that also means it's earthly, right? It's it's not something that would exclude the earth, right? So, but the the, the thing that that I'm I'm trying to bring out here is that it raises questions, right? Because Caesar Augustus prided himself on having brought about the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, right? right? And, and yet we have this other figure now who seems to be a subject of Augustus Caesar, right? His father, Joseph, has to obey this decree. And yet we have angels saying, this one is the anointed one, the Christ. This one is the Lord. And this is the one who will bring peace on earth. So it raises these really interesting questions um, about who is the real Lord here, and and what is R- rendering peace? unto Caesar, uh, etc. So you know, where, where right, what's, right. what what sort of law are we bound by? What sort of 
Peace right. is the peace we're looking for. Now, and, and some Bible readers, you know, kind of point these things out and say, well, then there's there's simply this conflict, right, between Jesus and uh, the emperor. And I think that that's, that's kind of a stunted reading of the text. If you read, uh, if we just stick with Luke, right, if you read through Luke and Acts, it's very clear that um, Luke in no way thinks that Christians ought to simply reject uh, the Roman Empire and even the particular kind of peace that the empire brings. Right, but even Christ, I mean, the whole, the whole render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's Absolutely. implies that you're supposed to render unto Caesar the right. things that are Caesar's. Right. Um, so it's not as if we should just turn our back on the world altogether and just say, right. look, you're just the enemy. We want nothing to do with you. Right. Clearly, we have to be, you know, in the world, but not of it. And that's that's the paradox and the, and the uh, the conflict and the tension. So th- let's look at that, t- that, that in terms of conflict, tension sure. and, and peace. Right? Yeah. We don't think about peace in terms of conflict and tension, <laughs> right? But but really, there is a, there is a t- conflict and tension between the peace that the world offers uh-huh. and the peace that Christ offers. And what's the difference and what's the tension? Yeah, so, well, the, the, this tension that you're mentioning um, between the claims of Christ and of Christ's church and of uh, the Roman Empire and its emperor, you really see that persist through the early church, that kind of Lucan tension between the two. But I think the best kind of theorist of this is St. Augustine. It's appropriate here at the Augustine, so I'm going to point to Augustine, <laughs> but especially in um, in his his uh, his magnum opus, he actually calls it that himself. That it's okay. it's a magnum opus, uh, the City of God. Yeah, right. And and he says, look, we need to distinguish between these two different kinds of peace. And you know, when I teach this, I actually find it helpful to use two different words right. for peace. So Augustine says that there's a peace that's proper to this world, right, and one that's proper to the City of God which is fundamentally in heaven, but which is also present on earth as the church, as the body of Christ. And I think it's helpful maybe to use the Latin term pax, right, as the term for this earthly peace. But then to maybe use a biblical Hebrew term for the peace of the city of God, shalom. Uh, Shalom has all these resonances, not just of a kind of absence of conflict, but of fulfillment, right, of wholeness. Of, of everything being uh, a harmonious, integrated whole, right? Whereas Pax, interestingly, is related etymologically to our word pact, right? Pactum mm-hmm. in Latin. And so what is that? It's a negotiated peace. Mm-hmm. It's a compromise. And so Augustine really exploits this. He really capitalizes this in contrasting them. Earthly peace will always be provisional. It will always be in some way unstable. It will not be fully There's always just. going to be a, a, a conflict. It's always muting with, conflict. Right. It's just, just sort just of like just keeping, yeah, keeping yeah. under control rather than yeah. getting rid of it. And that's true with the Roman peace too, right? And a lot of people point out uh, today, especially scholars are fond of pointing out all of the injustices that the Roman peace was built on, right? It's a society that's built on enslavement, on wars of conquest, right, uh, on, on subjugation of different peoples. But they would possibly, but of course, just to be a little bit controversial. Oh no, I I, I was going to controvert it too. So go uh, ahead. Well, the, but the repost would be uh, from that that other magnum opus, uh, the life of Brian by Monty Python. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? Oh, we you know, just uh, jumped into the surreal. <laughs> I mean, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then, of course, they list all of the various the various exactly because uh, obviously, yeah, there, there, there is there is subjugation, there is an element of tyranny, but there's also actually an element of bringing bringing, a, for want of a better word, civilization to, yes. to far-flung regions. Oh, and it's it's not as if all of these different tribes and kingdoms that the Romans were conquering had been these kind of, 
you know, kingdoms of peace beforehand living in this Edenic state. Right. Right. They're all fighting with each right. other. And are we really going to turn up our noses at a group who's able, even if it is provisional, it's not perfect. We should right. recognize that. But you know what? Now we have this great road system. Right. Now we have open communication. Now we have general stability. And the early church was very appreciative of the fact that in God's providence, this allowed St. Paul's mission work to be as successful as it right. was. It allowed the gospel uh, to yeah, spread. In fact, it laid the foundations uh, right. for the faith in the sense that the, that the Roman civilization became Christendom, right? Yeah, once, once ultimately. It ba- once it was baptized. That's absolutely right. And so, so Augustine is very much alive to this, right? On the one hand, he wants to make sure that we never confuse the two pieces, right? Temporal, worldly peace is never the same as the heavenly peace. But he compares our situation to that of Israel in exile in Babylon. And there's actually a passage in Jeremiah 29 where God tells the people who are heading off to exile in Babylon, right, who are devastated, right, that that they need to pray for the nation to which they're going in exile because in their peace is your peace. Not because the, the peace of the world and the peace of the city of God, the peace of Babylon, the peace of Jerusalem are the same thing. They're not, right? But Augustine says the city of God can make use of this earthly peace. We don't depend on it, right? right? The church can survive in the most chaotic situations, right? God's grace is so powerful, uh, right? We talk about all the time about Tertullian saying that the blood of Christians is seed. It's usually paraphrased. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's absolutely true. On the other hand, when we do have tranquility, when we are able to live, and and St. Paul says that we should pray for this in 1 Timothy, right? Um, then, it, then it, in a way, it does open up possibilities, right, for building culture, for uh, bringing out the beauty of the gospel, for raising children uh, in the faith. And so Augustine, on the one hand, is very careful to make sure we never confuse the two pieces and that we know that we're not dependent on earthly peace, but also that we appreciate it and that, that we want it. But what about so the conflict within the Christian understanding of peace that's in heaven, I think, in two ways, mm. two, well, two things I'd like to say. Maybe I'll say one and then return to the other mm-hmm. if we if we get round to it. But the the, the first would be that the the, the the paradox is of course that yes you have times of persecution and and uh, the, the seed of the martyrs is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, that when the church is fought in the catacombs, it's often a, a purification, a purgatorial mm-hmm. uh, cleansing uh, of corruption in the church and a purification of it. So it actually becomes stronger. It does become a seed that can grow, the mustard seed. Mm-hmm. And and at the other extreme and I know we're talking about via media here but at the other extreme we have comfort being the great corrupter where the church is so much embedded within the culture and so much a part of the culture that it becomes almost tied to secularism sure Uh, and and the inevitability the inevitable consequence of that of course is corruption within the church and and not of the mystical body of course itself but members of the church become corrupt so what about this tension between um, you know that sort of peace that can actually become decadent no that's that's great yeah yeah I mean you know when I teach church history one of the first things that I want students to understand is that there is no golden age of the church. We are always pilgrims and sojourners, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. The golden age is the eschaton. The golden yes. age is when God is all in all. Amen, right? brother, we're kindred spirits. And, and yeah. you know, when we talk about the Church of the Martyrs, we have, a, we have a lot to be grateful for. And many of the fathers wanted to bring that out, the heroism of some of the martyrs. But if you read the text carefully, one of the things that will start to strike you is how many apostates there were too. 
Right. Of right. course. Yeah. 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 Course, yeah. So let's not kind of idealize you right. know, the age of persecution. And then when you mentioned Christendom, I mean, I was most struck by this once reading um, Sigurd Unset's wonderful biography of St. Catherine of Siena, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've told you this before, you know, for me, I don't tend to go past the 14th century. So this is right at the <laughs> edge, right? And um, and at the end of it, um, you know, having having... Uh, read through the, the marvelous and tumultuous story of, of Catherine's life and her involvement, um, you know, with with uh, with papal politics and and uh, all these things that are going on. Uh, Unset sort of steps back and says, "Let's take a reality check here, right? This is a period of, t- of time when almost everyone was nominally a Catholic, right? When you have, in some ways, the kind of height of Catholic Christian culture." And look at the mess right. that it was, right? right? Because um, the problem we have is not simply one of kind of ironing out what's the best way we can make use of earthly peace, right? At the end of the day, what we need is that heavenly peace. right? And I think actually one of the best expositors of this, I mean, Augustine for sure, but actually one of his kind of theological heirs a few decades later is uh, Pope St. Leo the Great. Mm. And he has, uh, we ha- we're very blessed to have, I think, 96 of his sermons that have survived. And they're really spectacular. And some of his very best are his Christmas sermons. And uh, in one of his Christmas sermons, he really seizes on the fact that the first thing the angels announce is peace. And he says, well, what is this peace that's being offered? Uh, And he actually says, one of my favorite lines of his, he says that this is the gift that surpasses all gifts. Because the peace that Jesus offers us is not, again, simply an absence of conflict. Well, the peace that Jesus offers us is what happens when our hearts love what God loves, when our hearts are conformed to God's love. And that's something that only happens through Christ, right? And this is, you see this in St. Paul, right? For example, in, in Romans 5, when he talks about how um, we were justified by faith so that we can be at peace with God, right? And that's that shalom, right? That fulfillment right. of being in step with the maker of the universe, with the meaning of all things. So I do like, obviously, linguistically, we do have to make those those distinctions. So I like, I do like the way the, the Pax being worldly peace and shalom being uh, heavenly peace, you have the peace of Christ. Right. But I, I did, maybe to conclude our conversation, try to get somewhat more, on a, a more mystical level here, because there's another type of conflict, I think, in mm. the heart, leaving aside the city of man altogether mm-hmm. uh, and looking at the peace of Christ, uh, the city of God uh, in itself. I mean, I, I wrote a book uh, some time back uh, about Father Hu Lung, who's the founder of the Missionaries of the Poor. Mm-hmm. So He's sometimes called the Mal Mother Teresa, mm-hmm. very similar charism to the Missionary of Charities. But their motto is joyful suffering with Christ on the cross. Mm. And so this understanding of joy, and C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this as well, as, as, as something sure. which has within it the peace that we desire, mm-hmm. but that it's not separable from a suffering, at least this side of the grave, of course. This, so obviously yeah, in heaven this yeah. is resolved. But um, but this side of the grave, is not, it's not separable from, from suffering. So so how, how do we understand joyful you know, peaceful suffering with Christ on the cross. How how can we get our heads and hearts around that? Yeah, I, I don't think we can apart from the resurrection, right? right? Apart from fixing our eyes on Jesus. I mean, really, you want to talk about joyful suffering. The, a text that never ceases to just amaze me is the beginning of Hebrews 12, right? Where um, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, 
scorning its shame. And this, this always blows my mind because what joy was set before Christ? I mean, this is the second person of the Trinity right. who from all eternity enjoys perfect blessedness, perfect happiness, perfect fulfillment. And you realize we are the joy right. that was set before him. He looked at us in our misery, in our sin, and saw joy because he saw union with us. He saw um, allowing his love to spill out into us and calling us to share so in opening it. the gates of heaven for us. And so if we don't see what he saw, we won't be able to do that. Right. Right. It, it will become masochistic and perverse. Right. But if we see what, what he saw, if we fix our eyes on him and let our eyes become like his and see what he sees, I think that's the source, right, of that peace and joy even in suffering. So suffering basically uh, becomes meaningless and nihilistic if we don't keep our eyes on the resurrection. Absolutely. Well, on that joyful and peaceful note, indeed, um, we'll, we'll conclude our, our conversation. Uh, my guest today has been John Seahorn, an assistant professor of theology here at the uh, Augustine Institute. John, thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Joseph. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. And this has been another Faith and Culture podcast of the Augustine Institute. I've been your host, Joseph Pierce. Please do join me next time. Until then, goodbye and God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Faith and Culture with Joseph Pierce. Faith and Culture is a production of the Augustine Institute. For more information, please visit us at faithandculture.com.